Hello and welcome to Pop Screen, Geek Show's music and movies podcast dealing with the good, the bad and the preposterous of movies either starring about or by pop stars. No, the podcast covers such a broad mix of music and cinematic genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm your host, Graham Williamson. I can also be found as a film critic for Horrified.com and The Geek Show. And I'm also on The Geek Show's podcast, Director's Lottery, which you can get if you're a Patreon backer. This week, I've been joined by... Andrew Young. Hello. I, um, I'm also vaguely associated with The Geek Show. Basically, if Graham is doing a podcast, chances are at some point I'm going to pop up. <laughs> uh, I can also be found online at Hocus Blocus on Twitter and Letterboxd, and that's Hocus with a K. Because Absolutely. if you're going to spell anything, use the Mortal Kombat naming conventions. Also, the pun wouldn't work if it was with a C. That, that's also very true. And I also host the podcast Behold! where we look at comic book adaptations, whether they're movies or TV shows. And, of course, as with all subjective art forms, decide to rank them all on a list until we have the objective best one. What's the front runner so far? Uh, it is currently Vote to Perdition, and I do worry that we've maybe peaked a bit too early, because that is a very good film. Yeah, maybe. No, I'm sure you'll find something. But as it's, the... it's surprisingly not going to be the 1990s Captain America film in which yes. Captain America has rubber ears. <laughs> Maybe that's what superhero films now need. It is, that's where Zack Snyder's gone wrong. That, that's what's going to be in the Snyder Cut. He's just taking his time to put loads of rubber ears on everyone. Yes, turns out the real problem was just that it wasn't Superman's lip that needed to be rubbery. It was everything else. But yes, that, that's behold for you listeners. That's the sort of thing you get. But for this week, well, the history of pop music is replete with artists who were tipped to be megastars, but ended up as obscure, penniless and embittered as the average podcaster. Among these cases, the strangest is that of Syllable and Brains, the two Californian rappers whose skyrocketing career was destroyed when it was revealed they were from Dundee. It's a story that forces you to ask several questions like, what? And, no, seriously, what? But fortunately, ace documentarian Jeannie Finley was there to chronicle their rapid rise and even rapider fall in this week's film, The Great Hip Hop Hoax. So this is the first time that, I, I suppose we've done some cult bands, but this is the first time we've done a band who were paradoxically famous for being obscure. Yeah, I, I certainly had not heard of Syllable and Brains before we started this episode. Mm. And I, I think this documentary gives you a pretty good crash course as to why that is the case. Yeah, they are. They're, they're very 2000s, aren't they, Graham? <laughs> they are, yes. Do you, for all the people keep talking about Eminem in relation to them, that, that single they have where they just insult each other's mums. As soon as that came on, I sound, thought that sounded exactly like JL Bait, the Eminem-style rapper Chris Morris plays in the Brass Eyes special. Yes. And I think, we, we again, we can't like take away from just the sheer importance of the fact that they have a rap song that is just called Your Moms. Yeah. It, it's like Eminem Eva rap reduced to its most like unrefined level, I guess. God, the naughties were terrible, weren't they, Graham? They were such a bad decade. Uh, there's that whole bit in it where they crash the Brit Awards and every photo that you see of them with some musician from the early noughties just made me groan. It's like a horrible reminder of days gone by. Just every photo of Billy Boyd with his fringe going down to the left <laughs> and the spiky bits at the top of his hair going off to the right. 
Because that's uh, the the two people behind Syllable and Brains were Gavin Bain and Billy Boyd, and I think the latter needs a disclaimer of no, not the Hobbit. Are, are we sure he's not the Hobbit though? I say They're masters that. of deception, Graham. <laughs> yeah, it's it's quite possible. The fact that one of them isn't like shares a name with an actor from Lord of the Rings just cements the sheer early two thousandsness of this story. I was just I was amazed by this film, Graham, because their plan was so bad and it worked so well. <laughs> Should... Because yeah, yeah, if you want to set up kind of essentially what it is they actually did. Because the, the inciting incident seemed to be that they went for auditions at a record company and they were laughed off stage because they were rapping, but they had Scottish accents. One executive said they were like the rapping proclaimers. And so they just decided to pretend to be American, like all the time. Yeah, I mean, I think originally they said the plan was like they were going to pretend to be American, get a record deal, and then like publicly announce that they're Scottish just as a bit of a, you know, middle finger to the uh, to the, the executives. Yeah, but it's just they they put so much effort into half the plan, like <laughs> they spent every minute living and breathing these American accents. Yes. And then just didn't bother researching what's California actually like. There were so many slip-ups, like right at the start of the film, there's there's a clip where they're in the middle of this plan, they're pretending to be American, and one of them goes, and then we went back to London, and I thought I, all they would take was just one person to say, oh, you've been before, and they'd be absolutely snookered. Yeah, because that's the other thing. They, they don't, like, wear disguises or anything. They're the same people. And again, they even say, like, as they were getting famous, there were so many people in their hometown just watching them on TV going, we, we know them. They're not American. They're from Dundee. That's one of the points where it feels like a kind of historical inflection point, doesn't it? Because nowadays, if a pop star or a film star or anyone gets famous by pretending to be something they're not. They have a massive online paper trail of like them uh, as they were in their real life. But this is 2003, 2004. Facebook is just being invented. There isn't really that foolproof way to catch someone out. And for a while, I'm sure it was just like an open secret in Dundee that they weren't American. And that's it. That's all that, that's the only people who were qualified to rumble them. Yeah, actually, yes, I guess that's probably where I'm being slightly harsh in this film, is that we do come from an age where you can find someone's entire, like, history from birth by, like, three seconds of Googling. Yes, yeah. And that has sort of changed pop music's relationship with authenticity a bit, I think, because on the one hand, if you're doing that classic old pop trick of pretending to be from a rougher, more working class area than you actually were, forget it, you know, that's over. But on the other hand, music and particularly hip hop, which you know, as is the crux of this film, it used to be all about authenticity, is now full of incredibly larger-than-life characters with flamboyant stage personas, as if they're saying, look, we, we know that you can tell at the touch of a button if we are who we say we are, so we might as well say we're something interesting. Yeah, I guess it's kind of that sense of it's such an easy-to-debunk secret that it's like... I guess it's like watching a film mm -hmm. and it's it's not trying to make you think, wow, I can't believe they got Henry Cavill to break <laughs> the laws of physics themselves. And that's just his top lip. Exactly. But yeah, it's just, it's buying into it for the sake of the performance. And that's, yeah. And that's one of the wilder things about this documentary 
is they've gone through this whole elaborate like hoax and like basically worried they're committing fraud. Mm. But essentially what they've done is just created stage personas. Yeah. And it, it's it's really weird because I think if they were doing it now, I suppose the only payback there is for doing something like this now would be a charge of cultural appropriation. But if you're from Scotland and you're pretending to be white Americans, you can probably say that's punching up, right? Yeah, I don't, can, can you really either claim that? Can you really claim that either of them is culture? Well, yeah, <laughs> the, the mullet that one of them has when they're pretending to be Americans is definitely not culture. I think we can say that with certainty. God, and their jeans are so baggy, Graham. <laughs> I, I know it's not the main point of the film, but I hate the naughty so much. <laughs> I mean, I think it does work as a, an accidental film about how crap the naughties were, because, I mean... Shall we, shall we go into our recollections of what that era of music and particularly rap was like for us? Because my main memory of Eminem's rise to prominence is that in about 2000, every middle-aged white man I knew suddenly came to me very excited and said, have you heard of this thing called rap music? Yes, I think I was probably the generation one down where it was more... Uh... Wow, have you heard this Eminem? I'm really into rap music now. Oh, oh cool. Um, can, you, can you recommend some other rap artists? It's, uh... um, I think Kenny Everett had a single <laughs> in the 80s. Um... <laughs> yeah, it was like that. And I don't want to give the impression that you know, teenage me was madly into hip-hop. I wasn't, like, writing for the Source magazine or something, although, you know, I, I hated Eminem and I had no knowledge of hip-hop. I was pretty well qualified to do that. But um, I, I, I hadn't heard and loved enough rap music not to get really carried away when Stan came out, which a lot of white British people really did. I did go. Because Stan feels like it didn't come out that long ago, but God, it was like mid 2000s, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. What a strange yeah, feeling. It... <laughs> yes. And yeah, God, there was definitely just that period of everyone watching Eight Mile and having that week of, I'm going to become a rap star now. <laughs> it's In one... between, look at my sweet skate tricks, and now I'm going to be really into parkour. Yes, yeah, they all did move on to parkour, it's true. I would like to think that even a spectator columnist would admit that the best thing about cultural appropriation being a sort of hot topic is that it has discouraged generations of talentless white people from trying to rap. Yes, that is, that is very true. Having heard some of the ill rhymes spat out at our school and i do mean ill in the traditional sense it's for the best yeah, there was that whole period where robbie williams seemed to be trying to rap at every chance he could get and you think yeah you talk about cancel culture being a bad thing but if it spared us root box it, it would we'd be hauling it through the streets on our shoulders and yet it's not spared us ed sheeran <laughs> Ed Sheevan, who went on a trip around the world and somehow came back with Galway Girl in his notebook. That was a, that's definitely one of those on the last leg of the flight home type songs, isn't it? <laughs> it came out just as like people were starting to scrutinise how difficult the Northern Irish situation would be after Brexit. And then that happens and you just think, oh, this is the last thing we needed. The Irish don't need another reason to despise the English. Yeah. Are, are we sure it wasn't some kind of like secret government plan to basically say, well, whatever happens with Brexit, it's not going to be the worst atrocity we've ever inflicted on Northern Ireland. 
<laughs> I think it could be the other way. I think Edge even could be like a Sinn Féin stealth operation. Basically there to say to uh, Ireland's Catholics, look, you can't want to be part of the UK after you've heard this. Oh, of course. It makes so much sense, Graham. Well, Polly, it's it makes more sense than the real world, so I want to believe in that more. Yes. So, yeah, they, it's, it's very weird because as soon as they pretend to be American in this film, it does actually blow up for them. It Maybe a few sort of, a, a bit of time has been skated over, but it does really seem like that was the one thing they needed to do. Yes, it's, I've got to put it with that, I've, it's, I'm of two minds. Because mm. what, what I think definitely a lot of it is just that the hip-hop industry, like, I mean, basically, like any industry that makes art as kind of a profit, mm. just has no idea what it's doing. <laughs> and so we'll just arbitrarily be like, Scottish rap, we can't have that. <laughs> like the rapping proclaimers, no one will listen to that. But California rap, where it's the exact same songs, but with a vaguely American accent. Yes. That's the hot ticket. And it's, but it's... then I also wonder, like, because as I say in the documentary, these characters they make up, they are these very bold, like, confident Americans. Mm. And is that something that kind of just comes across more when they're performing as that? Yeah, it's like your point about stage personas earlier. Like, it is very amusing to watch this film purely as a case study in record industry hypocrisy, but there is a case to be made that some people just come alive when they're in character. But yeah, and and it's it's more potent because it's in a genre that at the time was mad on authenticity in a way that... It isn't exactly now. I, I think that if you if you were a rapper now and you pretended to be poorer than you were, you'd get sussed out and people would hate that. But the idea that rap is just about sort of competitive hardship and the only way you can be a rapper is if you have a really grim life story and come from one of the pre-approved areas of America is obviously not the case at all now. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I guess that's probably a, a side effect of it becoming sort of more mainstream, mm. is that it, it is just seen, anyway, it's, a, it's a term I hate to use, but it's now product. Yeah, yeah, content, yes. But, the, I mean, the other thing is, the paradox of rap music is that when you look at its origins and when you look at the 80s stuff, it wasn't all you know, about ultra grim tales of poverty. De La Soul was still there rapping about potholes in their lawn. And, you know, that was as much an example of keeping it real as anyone, because that was their life. What seems to have happened is that as rap got more and more involved in tales of crime and poverty and drugs, more white teenagers started to buy it, which created a kind of vicious circle. Yeah, exactly, of the kind of glamorizing that kind of lifestyle because you are a middle-class white boy who lives in the suburbs. Yeah, exactly. I have here a book, a very good book called Faking It, The Quest for Authenticity in Popular Music by Hugh Barker and Yuval Taylor. Uh, there isn't actually that much about hip-hop in it, and I think they admit that, you know, the topic of authenticity in hip-hop could probably fill a book on their own, but there is a little section that I think is worth reading out, um, especially in the music aimed at white teenage males. Authenticity is seen as the key to artistic success. It is rare to come across a songwriter, rock singer or rapper these days who does not aim to keep it real for his audience or who doesn't talk about the difference between making it and selling out. Got to admit, as a guy who spent quite a few years as a white teenage male, they've pretty much got us there. Yeah, we, we are nailed to the wall. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess I guess it's what with the authenticity, it's just one of those things where it's it's kind of just become a marketing tool, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And in many ways it always has been. I mean, Barker and Taylor's book goes back into the history of the blues and finds that when the blues was kind of a living tradition back in the Depression era, it was just a style of music that people played. It was when the archivists moved in and declared this music to be authentic and important that it began to be about people like Lead Belly who'd had brutal hard luck stories. Partly, I guess, because that's how you make the case that this music is important. You know, there'll have been a lot of people in academia around that time who would have thought that studying black music was inherently worthless, that it just isn't good music. So you build the case for doing that by saying, ah, actually, this is a social document of crime and poverty in the American South. And somewhere along the line, the actual question of, you know, what its intended audience thought was good kind of slips back a bit. Yeah, it's again one of those things that happens in the race to make things important, as it mm. were. Yeah. And you can see that happening everywhere. I mean, you can see it happening in film culture to some extent that when critics started to cotton on to the idea that horror movies were interesting, uh, they tended to gravitate towards the horror movies that had some sort of obvious political subtext, which are sometimes great. You know, I'm as big a George A. Romero fan as any, but I would hate to give this impression that I can only watch a disemboweling if it's really saying something about the decline of the American middle class. Yeah, exactly. The only kind of elevated horror I want is when someone's stuck like with their head clamped in between the doors of a lift and it's getting closer and closer to the top and it's going to cut their head off and it's going to be dead gory and it's going to be great. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's... That, and, it's, that's... and it's about like consumerism or something, I don't know. That's pretty much buried an entire subgenre. Well done. We needed that to happen. Yes, thank you. It is, it is one of those terms that... Uh, I mean, to use one of my favourite phrases that I'm absolutely never allowed to use, gets on my tits. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's dreadful, isn't it? And, you know, uh, there, there are some, a fair few things that have been tagged as elevated horror that I liked. I'm a huge Robert Eggers fan, but it does overall remind me of, again, another awful point in Naughty's culture, that time when Eli Roth was just making movies about people being tortured to death and on the press tour, he would always say, ah, but it's actually saying that Abu Ghraib. Oh, yes, it's it's ironic ultraviolence. <laughs> in many ways, you know, are, are the human torturers not, in fact, man? Wow. That's blown my mind. <laughs> Much like the scene where a person's brains literally shoot out their nose. <laughs> it's so deep. Uh, speaking of so deep, there is a quote in this that I love for its absolute bluntness when Finley asks Bane, uh, do you have any qualms about this? And there's just this, you know the one, no, don't I, you? I do, because I think we've basically both written it down in our notes as like <laughs> one of the best moments. Where he just pauses for like about five solid minutes and he goes, no. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> just, just, no, I know I feel bad about taking their money. I mean, that made me like him far more than anything else in the movie, to be honest. I know. I mean, there were definitely lots of parts where I wanted to hate him, but that, and also I've got to admit the fact that as soon as they started listing off like double acts that they were trying to be inspired by, mm. his first go-to is Pinky in the Brain. That's <laughs> Against my better judgment, Gavin Baines, I think I quite like you. Yes, Absolutely. 
I think before, I, I want to talk a bit more about the likability of otherwise of Baines and Boyd, but there is one more great double act who have alluded to in this film, and it's quite roundabout. A lot of people will miss it because at one point, and this shows that this is why I love Jeannie Finley. I think she's wonderful. But at one point, they start playing something which sounds like it's My Name Is by Eminem. And you just accept that because Eminem has been mentioned a lot. Uh, but it actually plays out. It's actually I Got the by Labby Sifri, which is the song that that sample on My Name Is comes from. Now, Andrew, do you know which soon-to-be-famous musical duo uh, were in the rhythm section when Labby Sifri recorded I Got the uh, Chaz and Dave. Your joke answer is correct. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> there is an Eminem <sighs> single with a, a, a kicking bass line and a sick beat from Chaz and Dave. That's, th- thank you for this gift, Graham. Thank you for this precious, precious gift. Because yes, that, that was absolutely my joke answer. <laughs> Chaz and Dave of the song Rabbit. <laughs> Rabbit and Gertrude fame. The music industry is ridiculous, isn't it? It is. It really is. I wonder if Chaz and Dave had to pretend to be like really cool soul music experts to get their foot in the door for that. Like, was there a time when they were putting on American accents? Was there a time when they were sat in a studio doing a demo of Rabbit and one of them was a, oh, Lappy Sifri's on the way. Quick, get the cigarette holders, berries back out. <laughs> I'm going to say yes, because again, that's the world I want to believe in. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Oh, also, I did have another point about musical double acts that I wanted to make. Oh. Which, as as much as I don't care for a lot of Silver and Brains' lyrics, mm. the fact that in their big hit song, they make reference to Millie Vanilli, the most <laughs> infamous, like, plot, like, musical hucksters in the business, when they themselves are, like, complete fabrications, that takes some stones. I missed that, but that is brilliant. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd completely missed that bit. <laughs> yeah, I think I actually even noted down the lyric, which is, hotter than chilies, you know the dilly, leave your mammy in my words like Millie Vanilli. Wow. The, the, they are like movie serial killers, aren't they? They delight in leaving a breadcrumb trail of clues for the feds to come and get them. It is, it's literally... You had all the clues, Mr. Policeman. <laughs> yes. Would the snowman be better or worse if it starred syllable and brains, I wonder? I mean, I'm going to have to say better because I can't see how it would be worse. <laughs> I mean, surely, surely it has to be better just by sheer virtue of that would mean there would be less parts of the snowman where it focuses on the film The Snowman. And yeah. there's just something else happening on the screen. <laughs> yes. That's what should have happened when they got into the editing room and realised that they didn't have, like, about 15%, I think Anderson estimated, of the scenes they needed for the plot to make sense. They should have just gone, right, damn it, rap musical. Yeah, just do it. Just throw in a few musical numbers. Yeah. No one will notice. People watched Cats. <laughs> yeah, we both watched Cats for some we reason. Did. <laughs> Listeners, if that you was want... one of the last films I saw in the cinema. If you want to hear our thoughts on Cats, listeners, I think most of the second half of 2020's literary loitering has some sort of Cats reference. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, the last half of 2020's literary loitering is just us slowly breaking down over the existence of cats. 
I'm really pleased that I got to see uh, Onward at cinemas because, as you say, the idea of my last cinema experience before lockdown just being cats, just hanging there forever, is really traumatic. Yeah, God. But could you imagine if you did? And then after lockdown finally ends, just the cinemas can't reopen. And that was it. That was the last film you ever saw in a cinema. <laughs> if, if during that sort of summer period where they'd reopened but tennis wasn't out so all the cinemas were like okay we'll bring back some films from earlier this year how about cats yes everyone's favorite <laughs> but yeah actually no i've got it what you do from now on is in every showing of a film, you only show about half the film and you just keep randomly interspersing it with cats. <laughs> so that you now Violet have to... Durden. Like... Yes. <laughs> Except now also, you have to go multiple times to see the same film so you can get the whole thing. That's, That's how it. you make the money back. <laughs> we've done it, Graham. Much like Syllable and Brains fixed hip-hop, we've fixed cinema. I, I, aside from anything else, I love the idea of cats finding its niche as a sort of real life rickroll. Yes, as well it should be. <laughs> yes. Um, th there's a the side character in this film who did fascinate me, and I did a bit of research on, but Jonathan Shallot, the talent agent who gets behind them early on. Yes, the man who is literally like a caricature of ridiculous music execs. The yeah. man who, who has a guy he pays to listen to rap music and tell him if it's good or not. <laughs> yes. The guy who has a framed photo of himself with David Cameron and Boris Johnson proving that his like association with fraudulent duos predates syllable and brains. It is that's great because that picture is exactly the kind of thing that the main villain in a movie has in his office, so you know he's the villain. We're going to go into a golden age now where every single action movie will tell you who the villain is by having a framed picture of themselves with Donald Trump. That cliche is just going to accelerate beyond anything anyone's ever seen now. Oh my god, it is. Or like they're at a sort of fancy meal and they pull out their Trump brand steak knives. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they could have like backstories where there's a I've, uh, I fancy myself as something of a venture capitalist. I was one of the early investors in Trump University. Yes, God, that is that is going to be Lex Luthor in the inevitable Superman reboot. Oh God, it is, isn't it? Yes. I can't believe how much of this episode is tying back to Superman. It's been a weirdly consistent theme, hasn't it? I can't say I thought about Superman once when I was watching the great hip-hop hoax. And yet here we are. Talking about nothing but Superman. But no, John, Jonathan Shallot is just a ridiculous man. Jonathan Shallot comes on towards the end and he says something like, um, I think, you know, their story proves that they didn't need to pretend to be American to get big. Gonna have to stop you there, Jonathan. In my opinion, it proves exactly that. That is definitely the thing that it proves. Yes. In fact, it's almost like the opposite of what you said is the entire point of the movie. <laughs> But no, God, I just, I love his whole speech where he's going like, no, yeah, I, th I thought it was really funny. It was so funny. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> yeah, they don't sort of pan below here for the whole film, so you just imagine him, like, digging his nails into his hand until blood gets drawn as he says that. Yes, just carving into his skin the amount of money he lost on syllable and <laughs> 
Jonathan Shallot is currently repping uh, a, a much more authentic Scottish artist, Nathan Evans, that Scottish fisherman who went on TikTok to sing sea shanties. God, of course he is. It's a bubble that'll never burst. <laughs> it's, I hate Jonathan Charlotte. I wanted an entire series of movies about him. <laughs> yeah. Just this ridiculous fad chasing, just watching TikTok videos. Go, is this good? Oh, I don't know. Have, have some money. Make me money, please. <laughs> I just think that idea that you mentioned of him having a guy who's like the equivalent of Caligula's food taster, but for hip-hop music, is just the most amazing thing. Of course, you know the music industry works like that, but it's so amazing to have it confirmed that it works like that. It is, because it's just, it's the perfect encapsulation, just the fact that the man producing the hip-hop music doesn't listen to the hip-hop music. He just has someone tell him what good hip-hop music is. Do you think that if you were in that position, you could resist the temptation to, like, prank them? Do you think you would be there saying, yeah, Iggy Azalea, she's going to be massive and there'll be no backlash whatsoever? Yeah, people love it when you appropriate, like... African-American rap styles. Don't get me wrong. People like Southern rap now, but imagine how much more they'd love it if it was coming from a white Australian woman. Hey, Jonathan, Joe's going to be really big. We get Iggy Azalea to cover Old Town Road. <laughs> Just an entire album of Old Town Road covers by white artists. Do you know who I think are really due a comeback, John? Uh, Eiffel 65. People are yes. really anxious about, you know, what, what they're going to do next. In collaboration with Darude. <laughs> there probably is going to be this massive tour where all of the, like, turn of the millennium dance artists who become memes just hold meme stock, isn't there? It'll be Sandstorm by Darude. It'll be Eiffel 65. I guess Rick Astley is kind of an elder statesman of it. He is, but he, he's like the one who weirdly has a career again. Yes. So I, I don't know if that maybe disqualifies him. How did you feel when you were watching Under the Skin, the very serious and beautifully made and deeply disturbing art house horror from Jonathan Glazer? And Scarlett Johansson walked in a club and they actually started playing Sandstorm by Darude. It's part of me did assume that maybe my TV audio had broken. <laughs> like, like, has it done the thing where it accidentally switches from like the Virgin TV box to the, the TV itself? And it just so happens to be playing Darude. Because you wouldn't put Sandstorm in a serious movie. That's a meme song. That would be like if it ended with Scarlett Johansson breaking out into Gangnam Style. It should have. Yeah, which, by the way, isn't appropriation because Scarlett Johansson is an actor and she can play anyone she wants. <laughs> yes. That was taking it back to Cats, as we often do. That was one of the things when that Cats trailer came out. It was just after Scarlett Johansson had said, oh, I think I should be able to play anything. I think I should be a, a tree or an animal even. And I just thought, that is one finger on your monkey's paw going down <laughs> yes. right now. It, it was just beautiful timing. <laughs> so... Dragging it reluctantly back to syllable and brains. <laughs> I think one of the things that I kept thinking of was that thing that the Beastie Boys always said where when they started out and when they were doing stuff like Fight for Your Right to Party, they were sort of joking about being sort of leery, drunken assholes. And after about a year of doing it, they realised that they were actually just leery, drunken assholes, and there was like no layer of irony to this anymore at all. And I wondered, like, 
to what level did being syllable and brains let something loose in Bane and Boyd? Because they seem like pretty unpleasant people by about the 50-minute mark. Yeah, it's. I definitely got the impression with what they were saying. It was kind of a case of they, they went probably more out of control than they would have because of this idea of, well, it's not Boyd and Gavin Baines doing these things. It's mm. syllable and brains. We're not responsible. This is just those characters being those characters. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like obviously, I would never whip my my todger out and start weeing in another man's hands. But who knows what syllable would do? That was a strange moment, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. This this film's definitely up there with Eastern Promises in terms of more willies than I was expecting to see in a film. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> it does have a certain sort of. Uh difficult French movie level of male nudity. Um, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I thought, I, I guess that is kind of unanswerable. And I liked how in interviews they seem calmer now, but also not contrite at all, which I think is fair enough. You know, you made quite a bit of money in a short time by exposing a ridiculous attitude in the music industry that, you know, people were told to keep it real for success, but as soon as you came in as your real selves, that wasn't sellable. Yeah, exactly. That's a, actually, that was something I wanted to say earlier, is that I think that's one of the things that frustrates me about Jonathan Shallot as well, is how very much he's trying to steer it more towards oh, look at this wacky thing that these two people did, rather than look at how these two people exposed this glaring hole in how the music industry works. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, you know, if all you value in rap is sort of toughness and authenticity and some sort of street credibility, there's absolutely no reason why people from Scotland can't do that because people from Scotland, and I say this with a great love for my Scottish friends, people from Scotland are fucking mad. Yeah, I mean, there you go. And not the rapping proclaimers. No, not at all. Yeah. If anything, like... From the little we heard of it in the film, mm. the stuff they did as, I think, it, is it beat production, like their original group was called? I think that was it, yeah, something like that. Yeah. I thought that sounded actually pretty good. Yeah, I'd, I'd buy that before I bought your mum. Yeah, I mean, I think one of them, they were like, like fighting like a Jacobite, something like that. And like, that's good, that's, yeah. That's a strong lyric, I like that a lot. There is also, and this goes back to my point about Finley just picking the absolute best songs and bits of songs to illustrate her point, but there's a bit in their early song, The Movement, where they talk about home pride happiness, and you think, boy, you drifted some way from that mission, didn't you? Yeah, that's, I think, to be fair, that's something they admit as well, that they started off, because, again, they wanted to prove the only reason you don't like Scottish rap is because of this preconceived notion you've got. Yeah. But then they did maybe get too wrapped up in pretending to be these people and sort of losing that line of these are personas we're just doing professionally versus this is who we are now. Yeah. And when Boyd sort of breaks the spell when he goes on stage and says, look, I'm Scottish... By his account, the crowds genuinely don't know how to react. There's some of them that boo and feel like they've been conned. Yeah, exactly. Actually, I think it's I think it's Baines who does it, isn't it? Because I think Boyd, he's the one who goes just back home and starts oh, yeah. a family instead. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Yeah, but it's like I don't see any reason why. I, I know there is Scottish hip hop. I know there is a Scottish hip hop scene. It just hasn't sort of properly broken yet. But there's no reason why a properly marketed Scottish rapper couldn't make it big. 
without having to pretend to be American and have a mullet. <laughs> exactly. But I mean, I guess it's the, the same token of there's no reason why a female-led action film couldn't be massively successful. Mm, yeah, which the the logic of that is, well, if they were successful, we'd make them, isn't it? Yes, exactly. And the, well, the ultraviolet starring, sorry, Mila Djokovic bombed. Therefore, <laughs> all female action films will bomb. Or maybe That's... just the crap ones will. That was another noughties thing, wasn't it? I used to hear that line of reasoning so much in the noughties, and it's just another piece of evidence that we should bury that frigging decade. Yes. Just no one knew what they were doing. In a couple of years' time, you're going to start to see noughties nostalgia start up, and it will be the greatest lie about history since David Irving. God, the, the backwards baseball caps, they're coming back. They're coming back, yeah. Oh, dear. Uh, before we wind up, I think we should talk a bit about Jeannie Finley, who I think is undervalued as one of the most interesting documentarians in Britain, and particularly in terms of a podcast like this. Yeah, and she's from around here as well. I was wondering if you picked up on that. Yeah, Charlotte asks where she's from. She says Teesside. Yeah, that, that was a pleasant surprise. She has uh, at least one film that is about Teesside. She directed the incredibly wonderful film Sound It Out about the last independent record shop in Teesside, which um, listeners, I mean, the great hip-hop hoax is good, but... Uh, a major recommendation if you love movies about pop music is Dig Out, Sound It Out. It's a great, great, heartwarming film. Well, that's, I'm, I'm very tempted to give that a watch. You absolutely should. It's fabulous. Uh, but she also does a lot of movies that are kind of about... Um, about this notion that you see in the great hip-hop hoax of how authenticity can help or hinder a musical career. She's got a very amusing film called Orion, The Man Who Would Be King, which is, again, a true story about a guy who could not sing in any other voice other than the one that's other than one that sounded exactly like Elvis Presley and back when Elvis Presley was alive that was a major career hindrance because people would prefer to listen to Elvis Presley but after Elvis Presley died his career went in some very weird directions now that I, I am very interested by that's a good movie. There, there are some that I haven't seen that I would like to. I would like to see her film Goth Cruise, which isn't a metaphor for anything. It's about a load of goths on a cruise. I mean, yes, if that was the thing that existed, why would you want a metaphor? <laughs> yes. She also did, and I haven't seen this, but I wondered if you had, Andrew, but there was a documentary about the last season of Game of Thrones called something like The Last Night. Oh, I have not seen that, but that is it. I'm suddenly getting a very long list of documentaries to watch. You are, aren't you? Yeah, I'm sorry to, like, clock up your next couple of weeks, but she is a really great director who does consistently entertaining stuff that like this film also touch on quite tricky areas of authenticity and mass media and i really like that yeah it is because definitely something i've really appreciated in this film mm. with, with you saying you know, it being very heavily based on authenticity is how much in all the interviews it's kind of very clear that you are listening to one person's take on what the story is yeah. without it necessarily making judgments on how true what they're saying is. And even present, you know, like Billy Boyd and Gavin Baines, as we said, they are ostensibly like the protagonists of this film, mm. but it's not afraid to show them being like quite unlikable sometimes. Yeah. 
And, you know, a large part of the story takes place when they were both intoxicated from early success, intoxicated from being really drunk, and also pretending to be Californian. So there's probably no way you're going to get an objective viewpoint from them, but that's fine. It's incorporated into the structure of the film. Yes, exactly. And it just, it does take that very even-handed, it's not trying to push a particular narrative. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, and that's one of the things that is always successful about Jeannie Finley's films. I think they have big points to make, but they emerge very naturally from the narrative rather than being pushed in any way. Yeah. And also, the other thing I wanted to say is there, there is one person I identify with way too much in this film. Oh. And it's Baines and Boyd's friend who started B production with them. And whenever he's talking about, you know, their inevitable time going, oh, yes, it was so terrible. Oh, <laughs> no. Poor them. <laughs> are so clearly loving every single minute of it. He's like the anti-Shallot, isn't he? He can't <laughs> talk seriously about their downfall without keeping the massive grin off his face. And it was such a shame because I told them it wasn't going to work. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, I think that about rounds that up, uh, would you say? I, I think so. I think we've covered just about everything. Yes. Yeah. Um, so if you enjoyed this podcast, firstly, feel free to share it with your friends. But uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber to The Geek Show at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, you can get a bonus episode of Pop Screen every month, as well as Director's Lottery, the other podcast I mentioned at the start of this show. Uh, but until then, I've been Graham Williamson. And I've been Andrew Young. And we'll see you next week.